Welcome to the Talking the Talk podcast, where we'll be exploring items of automotive technology and their journey into mass production. I'm Kevin Reed, the founder of Ireland Made, where we celebrate stories of Irish transport past and present, and this is our podcast. I'm delighted to welcome my co-host, automotive engineering consultant, Mike Keane. Mike's consultancy delivers bespoke and sustainable transport solutions, and previously Mike has led vehicle development programs for Ford, Williams Formula One Advanced Engineering, Nissan, Jaguar, Land Rover, and Aston Martin. Mike has also worked on projects as diverse as hybrid supercars to off-road electric vehicles. But what is most impressive for me, Mike worked on the James Bond movie Spectre, and he worked on the baddies car, the Jaguar CX-75. In each episode, we're going to be examining vehicles that range from the 1921 German Rumpfler right up to what Tesla and Lucid are doing today. In our last episode, episode 11, we spoke about the history of suspension systems. And in this episode, Mike and I are going to explore vehicle dynamics. Hi, Mike. What part of vehicle dynamics are you going to explore with us first? I have suspension systems, vehicle dynamics, two hugely interlinked topics. Now, where the suspension system episode last time, we spoke about the tangible physical components, such as the difference between coil springs and leaf springs. Today, we're going to talk about the subjective attributes that describe how those components perform. So it's broadly divided into two terms, ride and handling. Ride is the ability for the suspension to isolate the components, sorry, isolate the occupants from the undulations and the impacts of the road. So, you know, in simple terms, how comfortable are, are the occupants? And then handling, fundamentally, it's the ability of the suspension to keep the tyres in contact with the road and pointing in the correct direction so that the car responds accurately to the requests of the driver. All right. I'm looking forward to this because as a person who drives a 1965 Volvo Amazon with a lot of body roll and on skinny tyres, this is going to be very interesting for me. Uh, now, let's explore this. Dynamics and suspension design are not independent. No, there's a there's a mutual dependency between them, Kevin. So as suspension and vehicle dynamics became better understood in sort of the earlier days of development, it often became clear that the existing technology at the time were just not capable of performing well enough to achieve the, some of the desired performance targets from a dyna dynamic perspective. So as a result, that would encourage then the development of new components. However, the components were also subject to many other influences in the car design, such as the package space or the weight or the complexity even, or, you know, and then obviously the cost. So a conversation about dynamics, it, you know, it goes hand in hand with component development. I haven't said all of that. We're going to look at dynamics mainly from a chassis and from a suspension perspective and how the dynamic targets influence the design of those components. But it's actually a little reductive. Um, vehicle dynamics, it considers the inputs from many systems and attributes in the car, not just the suspension system. So, for instance, you have the activity of the powertrain, the aerodynamics, the braking and steering systems, even the mass distribution in the car. And then all of these would would normally affect or do affect uh, vehicle dynamics. So that's a very, very wide remit. And we're not going to cover all the details of the actual engineering. Instead, today, what we're going to look at is the history of vehicle dynamics. Right. now. You and I, we often reference engineers and designers in our conversations, and we've often named specific engineers, sort of like famous examples of them. You know, in the Trendsetters episode, we talked about Alec Asiganus with the mini, Giorgetto Giugiaro, you know, was very prominent throughout the styling episode. And even in the last episode on suspension, 
we talked about Earl McPherson, who developed the McPherson strut. But actually rarely has one topic owed itself so significantly to one engineer as vehicle dynamics. So that sounds like a genius. Does this genius have a name? Absolutely. Morris Ollie, man from Wales. So he was born in Wales in 1889. So we're going right back to the start of automotive development. He started an engineering course in the University of Manchester, but actually tuberculosis was rampant at the time and it cut his engineering short. So then sort of fast forward into 1912 then, he joined Rolls-Royce in their aircraft division as a draftsman. And then subsequent to that, he became a tool and jig designer. And for a period, he was working directly with Henry Royce himself, actually, on a number of aircraft engine components. Then in 1917, Rolls-Royce sent Morris Ali to America to study tooling design. And he worked with component suppliers for the Rolls-Royce aircraft engines. Now, a number of those suppliers were actually small car companies in their own right, and he did contract work with them. And that was sort of his introduction into car work. Then the following year, 1918, Rolls-Royce actually made a decision that they were going to build cars in Massachusetts in the US. Really? So they, yeah. they, I always had in my mind that they only build Rolls-Royces in Britain. No, absolutely. And it gives you an idea, like a, a real indication of the strength of their export market back at, at that stage. And of course, you know, back then, you know, as they are today, Rolls-Royce were sold to affluent buyers only. So they created a manufacturing arm in Massachusetts and Ollie was given the position of chief engineer. And really, he was he was pivotal in expanding that arm of the company. And he worked there for the next 10 years. Um, Rolls-Royce had a manufacturing division right up until 1929. And it was actually, it was the Wall Street crash that killed off that division in, in the US. But at that stage, Ollie was settled in America. He was married. He had a family. He wanted to stay in America. So the following year then, Cadillac's chief engineer, a guy called Ernest Seaholm, he brought Ollie into Cadillac as a chassis engineer. So now our story and our exploration, now we get into vehicle dynamics. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So in Rolls-Royce, he gained a lot of experience dealing with sort of the inherent um, dynamic problems with the technology of the time. Now, bear in mind, Rolls-Royce were state-of-the-art, but still state-of-the-art at that stage was solid rear axles and solid front axles. And the, the solid axles, they give particular ride and handling problems. And another thing is actually there was a, a lot of um, problems, vibrational problems, particularly on the front wheels due to unsprung mass. Ah, so in the suspension episode, you had previously spoken about the solid axle translating on forces and movements basically from one side of the car to the other. In the context of this conversation, what do you then mean by unsprung mass? Right. So unsprung mass is actually a very important concept in vehicle dynamics. So if we think of the four corners of the car in very simplistic terms, we have four wheels sitting on the ground and they're then attached to the body of the car via the spring. So for you to think of this, right, so consider a very simple representation of wheels, springs, body, just sort of three elements, one above the other, very simplistically. The springs carry the mass of the body. And actually everything that's attached to the body, right? So everything in the body includes interior, powertrain, electrics, glass, even the occupants. So the mass of all of those elements is in the body and that's carried by the springs. So they're suspended by the springs. So that mass then is acting on the springs simply through the force of gravity. And it's actually relatively easy for the springs to control that mass. On the other hand, if you go to the other end of the spring, you have the wheels. So the wheels are not suspended. They're not sprung. 
And the wheels are dealing with the various bumps and potholes and undulations. And all of those elements are putting these rapid forces through the wheel. So the mass of the wheels is pushing on the lower side of the springs with multiple, often high frequency forces. And the springs must also resist those forces coming through. Now, the, the wheels are on the lower side. They're not suspended. So we call that mass of the wheels the unsprung mass. The heavier the unsprung components, the more difficult it is for the springs to control them. Now, I'm talking about the wheels, but actually there are a number of components that are unsprung. So if you think about the brakes, the discs, the calipers, the tires themselves, the hubs, the uprights, even the air within the tires, that's all mass that's on the unsprung side. It's on the lower side of the spring. So the ability of the engineers and the vehicle dynamicists to limit that unsprung mass, that's key for suspension design. You know, a good example of that, if you think of very high performance cars, think of something like a Lamborghini Aventador so that has carbon fiber disc brakes. So apart from the heat dissipation uh, benefit of carbon fiber disc brakes, one of the big benefits is that they are much, much lighter. So they're helping to reduce that unsprung mass. Right. OK, gotcha. Thank you. So take us back to Morris Ollie, his Rolls Royce experience. And at this stage, he'd been given this stage in our story, the role of chassis engineer. Yeah, right. So he came into Cadillac, he had a lot of experience from Rolls Royce. And then at Cadillac, he was given a, a very important and very wide remit of just improving the ride abilities of Cadillac's uh, product line. And Cadillac at that stage, they were, you know, as they are today, they were a division of GM and or General Motors and GM. They were already leading the industry in terms of vehicle testing. All right. Because in the safety episode, you'd mentioned GM, they started crash testing back in 34. That's correct. So right. they actually, GM built the industry's first proving ground in 1924. So a proving ground, it's a purpose-built testing center. It includes test tracks and, and other testing centers or testing buildings within the, within the proving ground facility. So the testing track, part of that then, the tracks are purpose-built to allow engineers to carry out performance and durability testing. So the track might incorporate rough surfaces such as potholes or cobbles or gravel or it may have low friction surfaces, um, such as ice or wet roads, so that, so that those real-world conditions can be simulated. Yeah, you know, and the reason I'm smiling is it reminds me of Dave Allen, the comedian from the 1970s, um, with Renault advertising a car, and they were showing their car going across the proving ground and all the things it was being subjected to, and he was looking at that going... I wanted my car to do that. I borrow someone else's car. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I know it's a, actually you know it's a great example. You know the, the testing tracks they're, they're very aggressive, right? You oh, know yeah. they 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 will often they will often mimic very specific pieces of real world testing. So they real world roads outside. So they find mm. a very bad condition road and they will replicate that exact bad condition road. I, I hate to say it, there was a period of time in the UK where um, the JLR had the Irish road test. I know so, that. <laughs> I, I do know that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, so that's all sort of the, the robustness and the durability testing. But they also can do the performance testing. So the proven grounds, they often have long, fast sections, you know, often with high-speed banking, and that allows continuous high-speed driving or emergency maneuvers or braking tests. And then as well as that, as I said, the proven ground, as well as the test tracks, they have a number of indoor tests where they have sort of wind tunnels or climatic chambers or shaker rig testing. And then car companies then put their prototype vehicles through a, a sort of a predetermined test plan that will work its way around with those various tests. So Ollie, what he had then, he had access to the proving ground, 
all of the variable surfaces he could take the car through a full remit of testing. That's right. Yeah. So he had this wide remit and he had this um, fantastic um, state of the art industry first facility available to him as well. Now, he brought some testing ideas over to GM from Rolls-Royce. So in particular, a bump test that Rolls-Royce were doing that allowed them to test how a pair of wheels would interact on a single axle. But really from there, you know, he introduced a whole series of test plans, developed test equipment and techniques that allowed him to observe and to investigate really in detail how the tires and the suspension and chassis interacted with each other. The real strength of Ollie was that he was very analytical, right? So, you know, he was very good on theoretical, mathematical first principles, but yet he simultaneously understood that ride performance, it's subjective and indeed handling performance, they're subjective. And then he took that subjective understanding and then translated that back into suspension component design um, so that those components could deliver the required field. So it was a very full understanding of, of all of the, the elements. Right, that, you, that was a full understanding, but I don't have a full understanding because I've got an, en- an engineer talking to me about something that's subjective. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to have to explain right. yourself here, Mr. Keane. Yeah, right. So, I mean, okay. So engineers, you know, we talk in terms generally of um, objective, measurable data, measurable targets. Um, and that's how components are designed. That's how systems are designed. But when it comes to something like ride and handling, ultimately it's a subjective attribute. It's how the occupant or how the driver is feeling and how the how that feedback is coming back into the driver. And, and really it's only when you put all of those parts together into a car and test them on a proven ground that that, um, that that will come, you know, that you can really get a true understanding of what that is. Now, long before the days of computer simulation, you know, we have very powerful computer simulation today, but long before those days, Ollie was in, in, a, in a territory where, you know, any calculations were done by hand, really. Now he understood um, and he, he studied and he understood the theoretical principles about vibration and oscillation frequencies. And he understood that ride performance centered around two primary frequencies. There's a pitching moment or pitching motion. So what that means is if you look at the side of the car, as the front of the car goes up, the back goes down, sort of like a, like a seesaw sort of mo- movement. And then the second primary frequency is a bouncing motion. And that's where basically the whole car rises and falls as one. So the theoretical modeling, so the, the, the paper mathematical um, analysis could predict what should happen, but really understanding how those two motions interacted with each other in sort of a complex real world environment, that could only be understood through physical testing. And even today with the power of modern computer simulations, proving grounds that are still used by the manufacturers? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as I said, we have very um, powerful accurate detailed computer simulations but really it's only when you put all of the elements together in the car and you have sort of the nuances of the materials the nuances of the assembly tolerances the nuances of even how those things perform in sort of let's say in climatic conditions or in in maneuver and dynamic conditions um if bearing in mind it's a subjective understanding we want to get we can only really get that our engineers can only really get that ultimately from proven ground testing mm. so Ollie, you know, he was the start of a, of a generation of engineers who understood that. And what he did is he modified a Cadillac sedan with two large frames, one at the front, one at the rear. And he had these removable weights on the frames. So he could add or he could remove weights from it. And when he did that, he could change how the car performed in relation to those two motions, that pitching motion and that bouncing motion. And then from this, then he understood, like, learned lots of things. 
but like one specific thing that he understood that we still and the engineers still recognize today is that a stiff front suspension has a much more significantly negative effect on the comfort of the car than a stiff rear suspension. And again, as we said earlier, bearing in mind cars at the time were all solid axles, including at the front axle. So that understanding then from Ollie and from his team, it led to the development of firstly independent front suspension. And also even further than that, it led to the development of the short, long arm suspension arrangement that we spoke about in the last episode. Right, because we spoke about both of these in the suspension episode. And as, as I understand, yes, GM were the first to introduce both in the 1930s and then how a variation of both of these are still used in nearly all cars today. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're going back, like this is still in the 19, you know, 1920s, 1930s, really set a standard for how the industry thought about vehicle dynamics performance, you know, how the industry carries out testing and develops with cars. And as you rightly say, Kevin, even how those components and features were developed that we still see today. Wow. So, I mean, this was groundbreaking work, but I say the story doesn't stop there. What else did he do? Yeah, I know. So he retired in 57 and he was prolific right through his, to his retirement, um, developing tests and developing products. In 1952, he was made head of R&D, head of research and, and development at General Motors. And in that role, then, his, one of his very first programs was that he was responsible for developing the chassis for the new first-generation Corvette. Wow. And even going back to the dynamic conceptual work, as is often the case in any kind of development work, when you solve one problem, you introduce another problem, sort of the, the law of unintended consequence. So the development of independent front suspension introduced really introduced a new vehicle dynamic characteristic and only himself called that understeer. Huh. So Ollie then, you know, to look at understeer, he then spoke to the Goodyear Tire Company and he asked them to give the give him data on the forces that were acting on the tires. And in fact, in order for Goodyear to provide that data, they themselves had to develop new testing techniques. So, you know, his influence is migrating throughout the throughout the industry. So he looked at the tire data and that really became key to understanding and solving understeer, and as well as multiple other characteristics. And then understanding the tire, that, that the tire is a key component in the chassis and suspension design, that's critical even today. And that relationship between tire companies and car companies, it's still a, a critical partnership even today. Wow. So like, like Ali, he played a pivotal and critical role for decades. He did. He did really. Kevin, it's, it's, it's really difficult to quantify the effect he had on how cars were designed and developed. One way we can look at it, right? If we just, if you think about how often you and I have spoken about him in across this podcast series, but without actually mentioning it, right? So if I give you a few examples, right? So he developed the concept of role center and role axis. Now we spoke about that in a good bit of detail on when we talked about the Chevrolet Corvair in the safety system episode. Ollie developed the analysis of lateral weight transfer. We talked about that in fuel tank design on the fuel system episode. He did analysis on drum brakes, which we looked at in braking. He did an analysis on the swing axle, which we looked at actually again with the Chevrolet Corvair. Um, and then if you just more generally think between the steering and the suspension episodes, we've talked about camber, caster, Ackerman steering, bump steer, anti-roll bars, understeer and oversteer. And they are all characteristics that he analyzed and developed. Um, it's funny, you know, we've I've picked up on the Corvair twice there, right? 
Um, you remember we talked about it in the safety episode quite a bit, Kevin. And you know there were some questionable design decisions made, particularly around chassis and dynamics, and it it led to those safety concerns that were held at the time. You know, it is somewhat ironic that the Corvair, the Chevrolet Corvair, was a General Motors product, considering that Ollie was head of R and D at, at GM. But to be fair, he had retired by the time the Corvair was was launched, so he can't uh, he can't take the blame for that one. He was he was well gone at that stage. Okay, so let's take ourselves back, take our conversation back to vehicle dynamic characteristics. Let's pick let's say two easy ones. We've got understeer and oversteer. What do they feel like for the driver, and how does the driver deal with them? Yeah. Okay. So two pretty common terms. So understeer is where the car is cornering on a radius that is larger than the one that the driver has requested. So or in more simple terms, the front tires are starting to slide out towards the outside of the corner instead of tracking around with it. And oversteer is the opposite effect, where the rear of the car starts to slide out in a corner, or in sort of dynamic terminology, the car is taking a smaller radius than that that the driver has requested. Now, any car can experience both of these due to a combination of design intent. So let's say suspension design and driver input. So weight transfer and tire grip level. So the driver has a lot to do with those things. Now, broadly, most road cars today are designed towards understeer. And it, it sometimes is, it's due to just simply package layout. So they might be front wheel drive. But there is also a deliberate uh, intent by the car manufacturers to promote understeer from a safety perspective. Um, if we look at the total grip, the total grip within a car, it must be balanced between the power and braking and cornering. And often that's done simultaneously, actually. All right, because this conversation is reminding my, my friend, Shane McGann from Longford. He's a rally driver and his skill allowed weight transfer in the car. He intentionally transferred the weight in the car by either utilizing understeer or oversteer in a completely controlled manner, which always increased the forward speed. And I remember him describing it to me as weight transfer. He was doing it on purpose. So the two things that were happening in the car, we were going faster and I was screaming a lot. <laughs> very, very good at it. So back to this circle of adhesion. We spoke about that in the braking episode. Yeah, we did. That's right. So the circle of adhesion, it's an imaginary concept that allows you to visualize that total grip um, that's available. Now, when we spoke about it, uh, we talked, looked at it from the perspective of the whole car. But it can also be applied as a concept to a single tire or to a set of tires. So if we consider the driven wheels in a front wheel drive car, if a car is cornering at maximum lateral grip, it's going through a corner, there's no more grip available. It's all been given over to, over to cornering grip and either a braking or an accelerative input is applied to the front tires by the driver then the tires just become overloaded there's too much grip there it's too much is being asked of them and they lose adhesion so from the driver's perspective the steering wheel will be turned but the tire loses grip and the car slides towards the outside of the corner now the remedy for that is to reduce at least one of those inputs so reduce the cornering input reduce the braking input or reduce the steering, uh, the acceleration input. And you do that until the grip is recovered. Right. So reducing corner input would mean straightening the steering wheel. Yeah, it would. Right. right now, so that's quite counterintuitive. So for a lot of people, if they're experiencing understeer, um, they'll actually increase the steering angle and they'll turn more into the corner. So sort of a, an attempt to somehow force the car more around the corner. But, you know, in very simple terms, if you think if the tire has lost grip at a given steering angle, steering angle, 
if you increase that steering angle, you're not going to find the grip, right? You're just going to make the, the make the, the situation worse. Yeah. So that it, as you say, it's counterintuitive. But you did say that understeer is designed for safety. <laughs> How's that safe? Right. So because if the car is sliding straight out of the corner and the driver doesn't apply sort of an appropriate remedy. So in that case, you know, they add more steering. And actually all that's going to happen is that the car will simply continue on that same trajectory. So it'll keep sliding in a you know relatively forward motion until it slows down to a stop or until it, it, it gains grip. But on the other hand, if a car is in an extreme example of oversteer, so the back is starting to slide around, starting to come around, and the driver loses control of it, it will start to spin down the road. And the trajectory of that spin, it's it can change trajectory very easily, and it's actually uncontrolled. So for that reason, understeer as a natural tendency in a car is safer if you consider that sort of the Mass, vast majority of the populace are not highly trained drivers like your rally driver. Yeah, yeah fair enough, like, like Shane McGann. So yeah. to summarize then, the front wheel drive cars experience understeer and a rear wheel drive car experience oversteer. That'll be sort of a, a natural tendency, right? That's that's definitely a natural tendency, but actually any configuration can experience understeer or oversteer because of the influence of weight transfer. And again, this is about driver input. So I'll give you a, you know, a classic example of that was the Peugeot 205 GTI. Brilliant little car from Great the car. early 80s. Great yeah. car. Yeah. yeah. Light, fast, nimble, lots of fun to drive. The 205 had a fairly common suspension um, arrangement of independent McPherson front and trailing arm torsion beam at the rear. And we spoke about all of those actually in the, in the suspension episode. And that combination, it was cheap to make, easy to package, and it could be set up to give you know, not very nice handling. But w- some of the negatives with that is that the torsion beam is quite stiff and the trailing arm doesn't allow any camber gain when you're cornering. So under heavy braking, weight is transferred to the front front tires and it reduces the grip on the rear tires. If the car is then cornered, the rear tires would lose adhesion entirely and the car would oversteer. So if you if you turn this, if you if you order that the other way around and you say in a corner, someone is cornering and then they break, we call that lift off oversteer. And many a 205 GTI, Kevin, was, you know, it was reversed to a hedge as a result of that that, uh, that characteristic. Yeah, but reversed to a hedge with style. <laughs> yeah, right. French style, right? <laughs> That's fine. Thank you, Mike. So join us for episode 13 when Mike and I will be exploring the history of motorcycle suspension. See you then. Thank you for joining us today on the Talking the Talk podcast. My thanks to Mike Keane, and you can check out his consultancy on mikekeane.ie. Then check out irelandmade.ie to view our back catalogue of videos celebrating stories of Irish transport, past and present. We look forward to welcoming you onto our next episode where we further explore the origins of automotive technology. You can find us on YouTube or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.